Thank you, Father, for the day and for your kind provision for us. You give us abundantly, graciously, beyond anything that we know to ask or think, as the Apostle tells us. And we find our lives to be filled with much grace, much goodness, overflowing kindness. We thank you. And thank you for the Spirit of God who resides within us. Thank you for how He has brought salvation to us. Thank you for how He is working salvation in us. Thank you for the fruit that He is producing through us, the gifting that He grants us to build up the body. And thank you, Father, for the illuminating power of the Spirit that gives us understanding to Your Word. And so would You give us guidance and direction this evening as we think about a portion of Your Word and how to understand it, how to interpret it. Might we be faithful And um, might we gain much hope and equipping even as we think on these things so we would be better stewards of the scripture that you've entrusted to us. Thank you for the time together. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So our task this evening is to think about how to read and interpret the epistles. And um, so it's my joy to do that with you this evening and spend some time thinking on the epistles. And the, the, the cool part about doing the epistles is that the epistles are the easiest part of the Bible for believers to read. So I've got the easiest task in the world today. Um, and we know it's easy because um, we have things like 1 Corinthians 7.25. Paul says, now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. And what do you do with that? Is this just Paul's opinion and we don't have to pay any attention to it if we don't like it? And uh, Paul's trustworthy, but he's certainly not inerrant in what he says. So, and he's certainly not God. He certainly doesn't have the authority of God. So what about, what about that? Do we, can, we, can we just kind of take that one with a grain of salt? Or what about, what about 1 Corinthians 1.16? In fact, I had someone use this with me in the last two weeks. Um, to explain a perspective on baptism. He says in 116, Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. And um, so with somebody that was talking to me about a transition they were making in churches, they were going to a Presbyterian church, and I said, Are you also saying that you're transitioning to holding from credo-baptism to infant-baptism? And they said, Yes. And I said, Well, just out of curiosity, on what basis? This verse that he baptized the entire household, the entire family, including infants. <laughs> so I think you have to do... <laughs> I think you have to do some gymnastics to get there. But that's, that is one of the key verses for infant baptism. Um, so, the, again, um, it, it may not be as easy as it seems initially. Titus chapter 3 um, verse 5, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Does Paul mean there that there is a second act of grace that comes to us by the Spirit of God that equips us for spiritual life? And again, that wouldn't be a position that we would teach here, but that is a position uh, that many people take, that there's a, a second act of grace for sanctification, and this is one of the key verses that they use. Or one of the very favorites from 1 Corinthians, and, and 1 Corinthians seems to be filled with these kinds of problems, perhaps. 
because of all the problems in the Corinthian church. First uh, Corinthians fifteen twenty nine. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? <laughs> that was an evil laugh. If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Um, so there seems to be a genuine baptism for dead people that was take going on at that time. And what was that about? And what did it mean? And how do we apply that today? Or should we apply that today? Uh, what about chapter 11? Uh, verse 4. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. So guys, when you come to church, take your hat off. <laughs> right? Or when you're preaching or teaching, no hat. Next verse, every woman, and we would buy that, right? So, I mean, you go to a restaurant, somebody prays, everybody takes their hat off, right? Get up in front, you talk, no hat. Every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one, one and the same as woman whose head is shaved. So if a woman doesn't have her head covered, same context, same situation, and she doesn't have her head covered, it's like she has a shaved head, and that's disgraceful. So if we're saying a man needs to have her, his head uncovered, are we saying a woman should have her head covered? And I look out on Sunday morning, and I'm not seeing anybody with covers on their heads unless it's Easter, and they're wearing a hat because they like to wear a hat. Um, that is not an insignificant problem to unsort. Or what about the relationship between salvation by grace and works? And does Paul contradict James? And does James contradict Paul? In fact, Luther said about James, St. James' epistle is really a right strawy epistle. I think he means it should be burned up. Compared to these others, for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. End quote. So it was straw in the sense of the Pauline use of wood, hay, and stubble. On another occasion, he said, away with James, I almost feel like throwing Jimmy into the stove. <laughs> Luther, Luther was certainly opinionated uh, about these things. So is there, is there a different perspective on salvation? Again, we would, we would say no, but there are many that would say, yeah, there are different kinds of salvation and so on. So reading epistles, we say, oh, epistles, that's a piece of cake. Um, there are... There are issues as we come to the epistles. So let's, let's think a little bit about um, how we are going to come to the epistles. Let's think, first of all, just understanding the structure of the New Testament. You guys are aware of this. As you think about the New Testament, there are five historical books, right? The four Gospels and Acts that those set us up for the, the history, um, heading from Old Testament to New Testament. Then there are the epistles. Uh, 21 epistles, so 21 of the 27 books in the New Testament are epistolatory. The epistles are divided up into two categories. There are the Pauline letters. There are 13 of them. And it's interesting to note that all of the Pauline letters are named for the recipients of the letter, right? So Romans, Galatians, First and Second Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon. So all of them were named for the people that they were going to. And then there are what we call the general. You might well sometimes see this as the Catholic small c letter, the universal letters. Uh, and those are the non-Pauline authors. So Peter, James, 
and John and Jude and the writer of the Hebrews. And all of those, except for Hebrews, are named not for the recipients, but for the author. Right? So first and second Peter, first, second, third John, Jude. Uh, all those were named, and James, all those were named after the authors. There are eight general epistles, 13 Pauline epistles. Uh, the letters were all written around 48 A.D., um, starting in 48. That was the first one, ending around 95 A.D. So for, first one, bonus, bonus uh, credit for anyone that knows besides Gibson. Uh, first, first New Testament letter that was written was... Galatians. And last one? Revel- well, Revelation's not an epistle, but John. <laughs> so the last, the last, whoops, the last part of the uh, structure is Revelation, one uh, prophetic letter or one prophetic uh, book in the New Testament. Uh, just a couple of observations. While New Testament books, 21 New Testament books are categorized as epistles, we find epistles in the Old Testament as well without looking. We find letters in the Old Testament without looking at the, at the notes. Where do you find some letters in the Old Testament? One classic one that ought to jump out at you. Who wrote letters in the Old Testament? Think portions of books, don't think books. Because the letters in the Old Testament don't follow strictly the structure of New Testament letters, but they're pretty close. There's, there's overlap. So Ezra, Ezra 4 and 5, letters going to Artaxerxes, and then from Artaxerxes back to Jerusalem. That would be the classic. And then you've got several other um, passages there as well where there are letters, either letters being alluded to and written, um, or the actual content of the letters is there, is there as well. Uh, the New Testament affirms... The genre of letters, um, so we found this in Romans 16. I didn't take the time to emphasize it when we were preaching through there a few weeks ago, but Paul, uh, excuse me, um, Romans 16:22. Paul was right. Paul was probably dictating the letter to a man named um, uh, Tertius. Tertius is writing it down as a scribe or an amanuensis. And... Paul took a deep breath in 1622 and Tertius took the time to, to write this line. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. So Tertius said, well, Paul's writing this. I want to say something too. And so he sends his personal greetings. But he alludes there to the fact that this is a letter and we understand that, um, at least in part, that he is affirming the credibility of, of letters um, in that statement. First Peter chapter three. Um, excuse me, second Peter chapter three. Uh, Peter writes this now, beloved, is the second letter that I'm writing to you by which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Paul alludes to numerous letters as well, both in first and second Corinthians that he had sent to the church in Corinth. Um, so the New Testament affirms the genre of letters. You have a number of, of passages there that affirm those things. Uh, while they were written to specific people and churches, they were also to be read to other churches. So Paul particularly assumed that when he sent a letter to someone, that it wasn't just going to go to that particular church, but that they were going to copy it and take it somewhere else and that others would read that as well. 
Um, any passages coming to mind as you think about that? Colossians 4.16 When this letter is read among you, have it also read to the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. So Paul wrote a letter to Laodicea. It's not part of the scriptures. Um, but there was something in that letter that he thought would be credible to, to both of those churches. And so he affirms that as well. When they were writing, they understood that as they're writing and sending these letters, that they're writing authoritatively. Um, they're not just they're not just talking, but they're they're expanding. They're writing with authority and they're expanding what has been revealed previously by God and through Christ. So, for instance, First Corinthians chapter five. Paul says, verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there he is appealing to his position in Christ and the authority of Christ. When you were assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one, the the one who was living in the incestuous relationship, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. So um, he recognized that he's writing with, Uh, explicit authority when he writes. And he's writing to expand things that had been previously explained. So, for instance, you find this kind of phrase, and this is not uncommon, particularly with Paul. 1 Corinthians 7, he's talking about the marriage relationship, and he's talking about marriage and divorce in this particular context in the middle of the chapter. He says in verse 12, But to the rest I say, not the Lord that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And what he is simply saying there is, I'm telling you this as new revelation. And he's saying, not the Lord. That is, Jesus hasn't revealed this previously. This is new revelation that is coming through me. Um, so it's coming with the authority of God, but it's, it's new revelation that Jesus hasn't spoken before. And you find that in the Apostle in numerous kinds of places. They also recognized that they were writing as as a defense of the gospel. So they're not just defending their own personal ideas, but they are, um, to use Jude's term, they are contending for the faith. They're contending for the um, written um, objective truth of the faith. Um, They were also all personal letters, but they should be understood and taken as Scripture. Peter has a most remarkable statement at the end of his second epistle. Um, he says, um, Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, Second Peter 3.15, and then moving into 16. Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, which are some things that are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, watch this, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. And so there he is saying, Paul is writing, and when Paul is writing, he is writing akin to scripture. He is, he is not akin to scripture, he is writing scripture. Right, So he is putting it on the same category. Paul writes, and it is equal to the rest of the scriptures. It is on par with 
Old Testament revelation. Um, so they, they understood that. Um, says uh, Duval and Hayes, in summary, New Testament letters are generally longer than ancient letters and fall between two extremes of informal private letters and the more formal literary letters. Letters served as an authoritative substitute for the personal presence of their authors. So they wrote. In fact, John alludes to this, both at the end of Second John and Third John. Um, I think it's verse 12 in one and verse 13 in the other. He says, um, I have more to write to you, but I'm going to wait until I come so I can see you face to face. So he, he's saying that there's an authority in the letters that is equal to his presence as he is unfolding the word of God. Also, it, it's helpful for us to see there are, just, there are times to write a letter and there are times to see people to face to face and they have those conversations. And, um, but he's seeing that the point I'm simply making now is he's seeing his letters as being authoritative. Uh, as Duval and Hay say, as a substitute for the personal presence of the authors. They were occasional or situational, meaning that they were written to address specific situations in the communities that received the letter. The writers were most concerned with applying theology in practical ways to real life situations. Right. So as professor in seminary said, uh, your theology has to walk across the street. So it's got to be able to work in the real world. And uh, and that's what they were writing to accomplish. They weren't just writing theological treatises. They were writing to address real problems, real situations, and giving practical counsel to people for how to how to live out their faith in the world. As we come to the epistles and we try and sort out the meaning of the epistles, we want to understand the setting and circumstances of the individual letter that we're looking at. So whatever letter you happen to be at in and you're studying and you're trying to sort it out, you want to understand the particular setting. As you think about those, the New Testament letters generally follow the pattern of ancient secular letters. They don't follow them explicitly. There are deviations. Even within the New Testament letters, there are slight deviations, so they don't follow an exact formula, formula but they do follow a pretty typical formula, and we'll look at, at that formula in just a minute. The letters were what we call occasional they were written for a particular occasion, right? So they were written in historical circumstances to real people with real problems. They're addressing specific situations and specific circumstances. Which leads one writer to say, the epistles are not essays in systematic theology with the, which the apostles sat down to compose in their studies. They are letters addressed to specific people, specific situations. And there's a temptation in reading the epistles to say, well, this is a theological treatise. And in fact, I just finished a five-year study <laughs> on Sunday morning of the one that's done the most that way, right? But Paul, Paul even in Romans, that's not a theological, um, a theological treatise. What is it? It's a letter. What else is it? What's he trying to accomplish See who's paying attention for the last five years. <laughs> it wasn't Romans. What's he trying to accomplish? It's a missionary letter, right? There's not a problem in Rome, so he's not writing to fix a problem, but he, he wants to get support. He's taken the gospel west into Spain, and he wants support. He wants Rome to be the base of his support, 
And so he's writing to them to say, you haven't met me, but you need to support me. And here's why you need to support me. And so the whole letter, the first 11 chapters is him saying, I'm orthodox. (laughs) And that's why he quotes so much from the Old Testament, because he's he's leaning on the Old Testament to say, I'm not telling you anything new. This is this is what the scriptures have always taught. And my theology, as you come to support me, is consistent with what the scriptures have taught. Now, that that puts a whole new twist on the book, doesn't it? Um, so you, you understand it's not just about theology, but it's driven by his passion for the gospel and in particular for missions, not just gospel within the context of the local church, but for taking the gospel elsewhere. Um, in fact, we, we find that it's interesting. We find that um, in Romans, he starts right at the beginning. He hints at it early on. Um, God is my witness. As I'm praying, he says, as to how unceasingly I make mention to you. That's one nine. Then verse twin, verse 10, always make, always in my prayers, making request. If perhaps now at last by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you for I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you so that you may be established. That is that I may be encouraged together with you while among you each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. So I want, to, I want to come and serve you. I want to minister to you. I want to build into you. But I want this to be mutual. And there's a hint, right? Um, I'm coming to give you something, but heads up, I want something also, right? So it's a, it's a gracious and subtle way to say that. Verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I have often planned to come to you and have been prevented from doing so, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. So I want fruit in you, um, but so I'm, I'm coming to help you, but all of that is still within the undercurrent of I want some help as well. And then he, he flushes that out um, very openly at the end of the letter, chapter 15, right? But now with no further place for me in these regions, since I've had for many years a, long, a longing to come to you, and he's been talking about, you know, the gospel's gone everywhere it needs to go in this region. Uh, whenever I go to Spain, verse 24, 15, 24, I hope to see you in passing and be helped on my way there by you. And that word helped is a word that's always used about financial support in the New Testament. Uh, when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. So I want to I spend some time with you. And then I want you to send me out and I want you to help me get to where I'm going in Spain because it's all about taking the gospel elsewhere. And so there he's just laid out for us very clearly his whole reason for writing this letter. Where are you going to get that information about purpose, intent, background? Well, you can dig and read and read and read and read. Um, truth be told, a lot of us are going to miss a lot of those things along the way. I, you, you can really be helped by just picking up some really good commentaries and reading all the introductory material, background setting, context. A good commentary will will give you a lot of data. Uh, and you can use um, Bible encyclopedias for those kinds of things as well. Bible dictionaries, there are a ton of those around. Um, and they can fill in all those gaps. So a lot of people have done a lot of that legwork, the history, the background of churches, the cultural settings, what's going on, what's going on in Ephesus, what's going on in Rome. Um, and we'd have to do a lot of reading in a lot of different places to pick up that data. And other scholars have done that stuff for us. They've mined that field already. So I'd really encourage you um, to read those things. A lot of you have study Bibles and there's 
typically one to three pages at the beginning of, a stu- of every book in a study Bible that will give you data about context and setting and purpose and who's writing and why is he writing, what's going on historically. Um, and if you want to read beyond that, you'd really be helped by picking up a good commentary or a Bible dictionary. Um, so we, we need to understand all that to say, we need to understand that when the letters were written, they were always written with a very particular purpose in mind. And we want to figure out what that purpose is early so that that can really serve as a guide as we're making our way through the book. Some letters are addressing false teaching. So give me some examples. What kind of false teaching are you finding in some of the New Testament letters? Galatians, what's the false teaching? Grace plus works. And Paul's pretty subtle about what he thinks about that, right? <laughs> not, not subtle. Um, and, and in other places, Paul is very subtle, isn't he? And, and in Galatians, he isn't. Um, chapter 3, verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who, put a, who, who cast a spell over you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Are you so foolish? Having been begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? So he's, he's addressing the whole issue of, yeah, we're saved by grace, but we are sanctified by works. And he is undercutting that and doing it in very clear uh, ways. What other, what other books are dealing with some heresies or false teaching? I'm sorry? <laughs> what's, what's the false teaching in First John? Come on now, I preached First John like 10 years ago. Why don't you remember? It's Christological. It's all, about, it's all about the person of Christ and whether or not he is both deity and humanity. And, and he really argues both sides of the coin because both kinds of perversions were going on in the church. But you find a, a definitive statement, chapter 2, um, 21 and 22, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie is in the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. So he is addressing the issue of, is Christ really really God, really deity? And that, that's not the only thing that's going on in the book, but that is a dominant theme, and you find that virtually in every chapter as he makes his way through the book, this, this theme of defending um, the deity of Christ. So um, Galatians is, is another one. Actually, there are other issues both in Second and Third John as well where he is defending things. Jude is, a, is about a, a defense against false teaching. Uh, and really, a lot of the New Testament letters are going to address a variety of kinds of false teaching, but these are particularly um, ad- uh, addressing false teaching. Some letters address problems that churches are facing. It's like First and Second Corinthians. Sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. Abuse of the Lord's Supper. Abuse of the Lord's Supper. Everything at the Corinthian church. <laughs> <laughs> Women in ministry. Divorce and marriage. 
spent a lot of time. He, he had some complimentary things about to say about the kids. I think he scratched his head before he wrote those. You're right, he did. <laughs> but I think he had to scratch his head. Let me find something good to say about him. <laughs> yeah, he is. But it was a fact because it was a church he was very familiar with. Yeah. Um, they also had denied his apostleship, so their immorality led them to denying his apostleship and destroying, trying to destroy his reputation. So, I mean, it was just, it was a church that was just fraught with all kinds of problems. And in fact, 1 Corinthians is not the first letter. He wrote, an, he wrote a letter initially. 2 Corinthians is actually 1 Corinthians, and then he wrote another letter, and that letter was lost as well. And so 2 Corinthians is actually 4 Corinthians. So there were four letters in total, at least, that he refers to in the letters. Um, so they got a lot of ink from the Apostle Paul. Um, and all of them were about problems that were inherent to the church. It wasn't wasn't primarily stuff that was going on outside. Certainly cultural influences were coming in, but that wasn't the real problem. The real problem was how they were handling things within the church. why it's important to see the occasion of the letter. Absolutely. Because a lot of those difficult passages in First yeah. make, uh, you see that he's not teaching new doctrine. He is addressing very specific, narrow problems that we're dealing with. Yeah, and, and, and that's where we also need to be careful in making sure, does this transfer over to us? And there's, I'll allude to this in just a minute, but the whole issue about meat and idols and what, what you can buy in the market and what you can't buy in the market and what you can eat and what you shouldn't eat and what you need to be thinking about, that was a massive issue as well. But that's one that doesn't transfer as easily in our culture, right? So a lot of the things he says about... Uh, divorce and remarriage and singleness and sexual purity and all those things, those transfer pretty easily, but the whole liberty issue, as we found in Romans 14, is, doesn't transfer That's without as, 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 as easily. So for my purposes, all I wanted to see is is that there are problems within the church. So some of the letters are addressed to problems within the church. Some letters are simply written to encourage churches, some particularly that were suffering. So you think about the Thessalonian church, the suffering was massive in that church. Uh, Paul was driven out of Thessalonica. He may have been there as little as three weeks, according to Acts 17. Uh, we know he was there at least three weeks. Perhaps that was all. I think it was probably a little bit longer than that, but it was not a terribly long time. Um, but he talks in, first, in his first letter then, first, first Thess 1 Thess 1.7, he says, You received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. You showed the rest of... Asia and Asia Minor, what it was like to live as a persecuted believer. Chapter 2, verse 14, You, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hand of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. So the apostles trying to encourage and build them up, um, and that's helpful. Uh, any other books you can think of that would fit that category of encouragement, particularly for suffering? If you think about suffering, which book do you go to besides Psalms? First Peter. Yeah, yeah. First Peter's all about 
all about suffering. Some letters were written to help individuals with particular concerns, right? So what are letters that are written to particular individuals? Philemon, right, right. So it's about the slave of Philemus, Onesimus, who ran away and uh, wanted to wanted to get away from biblical teaching, biblical instructions. So he runs to Rome because he can just lose himself in the crowd in Rome and he finds himself next to the Apostle Paul, <laughs> who happens to know Philemon. <laughs> who to thunk it, right? So Paul... Um, disciples Onesimus sends him back with this letter and tells Philemon. Again, here we see the authority of the Apostle Paul as he's writing. He sees what he's writing as being authoritative. Um, And he tells Philemon to forgive Onesimus and walks him through what that forgiveness should look like. And then we have Titus. Titus is written uh, by Paul to a young man in the faith. Paul's left Titus on the Isle of Crete. Titus is supposed to go throughout the Isle of Crete and establish churches and particularly assign elders to all of the churches on that island. And so he's giving instruction to Titus about how to do that. Similarly, Timothy. Timothy was left in Ephesus. Paul had been in Ephesus a number of years. He left Timothy there as the pastor, and he's writing to Timothy to help him to establish the church there. Now, as you're reading the letters, it can sometimes be a challenge because what you're hearing is a one, one-way conversation. So um, some time ago, I, I um, got up one morning and I heard Regine on the telephone and she said something like, Good morning, sunshine. Did I wake you up? Oh, I'm sorry for waking you. And I was thinking, oh, she's talking to Elizabeth. And uh, she must have just called her early to tell her she loved her or something. And then she said this, she said, oh, I was going to come visit you on Monday, but I can't come on Monday. Is it okay if I come on Tuesday instead? And I thought, oh, that's not Elizabeth. But she has a regular standing appointment on Monday to go help someone. And she's not going to be able to make that. And so she's calling to change that appointment and make the appointment on a different day. So if all I'd heard was good morning, sunshine, I'm thinking that's got to be Elizabeth. And it wasn't Elizabeth, it was a friend who was actually older than Regine that for whatever reason she called her sunshine that morning. And uh, and that's kind of the way it is with the epistles. Sometimes you're listening to this one-way conversation, right? You're only hearing what the apostle is saying. You don't know what's going on on the other end of the conversation and you have to infer things, which also means you've got to be careful because you might infer things that aren't there. So you just need to be discerning about that. Because of that, we want to pay attention to the general structure of the letters. And that means you're going to read, and then you're going to read it again, and then you're going to read it again, and then you're going to read it again. Um, actually, one of Regine's favorite ways to read scripture, she will read the same book over and over and over and over. And I'll, I'll ask her sometimes, well, uh, well, what are you reading? And it was probably, there was a season where it was probably a year where she said, I'm reading James. I said, oh, I know, I know. But like, what are you reading now? No, I'm reading James. (laughs) It's like, no, what are you reading? Well, I'm reading James. For a year, she was reading James and just immersing herself in the book. Um, And 
It's it's so that you you're just you dive so deeply that you you're not just running over the words, but you're seeing things in new ways and you start making connections between passages. Um, Says one of my favorite commentators in uh, an introduction to the New Testament that he wrote. uh, He said "The the student is not ready for a detailed study of the epistle until he is thoroughly conversant with the general thought trend and feeling of the book. You, you got to understand the book before you can start taking the individual passages apart. Um, says another commentator, there is no substitute for carefully reading a letter multiple times so as to reconstruct the historical situation behind its writing. So, you just got to read it and read it and read it and read it. So you just preached like the book of Mark in one sermon, more or less. How many times did you read Mark to prepare for that? I haven't asked him this question. I don't know, but I think I have an idea. Yeah, a period of about two weeks, I, I read it 15 times. And five of those times I read it, you know, I read all the way through in one sitting. Okay. And most of what was in that sermon became apparent to me. Yep. So when you're reading in one of those straight through 16 chapters, I don't remember how many words, it's the shortest gospel, but it's still pretty lengthy. How long would it take you to read? That's a good question. It's kind of intended to be. Yeah, and that, that's actually getting... Thank you. That's helpful. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get to... The, we read at different kinds of levels for different kind of content, right? So there's the detailed that we're just immersing ourselves, we're looking carefully, we're reading slowly, we're dissecting words as we're going along. And then, But you can't do that. If you're reading 16 chapters, you can't do that. You've got to read faster at, at a rate of what you would read reading aloud. Um I don't. I didn't pay any attention when I read Acts 10 the other day. Did anybody notice how long it took me to read that in worship Sunday? I'm guessing it was probably on the order of eight to ten minutes, because uh, it is a long chapter, 48 verses. Um, so that would be the two-hour mark for reading through that. But then you can also pick it up and go faster. But then there's also a time for okay, I've read it fast. 10 times now I want to go back and do the slow reading again um, so you you're just going to pick up details doing that where you're you're just not going to see it if you read a chapter today and a chapter tomorrow and a chapter the next day and a chapter the next day so um, reading the same thing repetitively will really 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 help you as you come to the epistles there's a general structure that we see in the epistles there's almost always an opening a salutation a greeting and that, in, that has several components to it. Depending on who you're reading, um, they're going to say there are at least four, maybe five different components to the opening. There's a word from the sender, right? So Paul in, in uh, Philippians will say, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. So we sign letters at the end of the book or end of the letter. And if you want to find out who's this coming from, you've got to flip to the last page and turn it upside down. Okay, that's coming from Terry. 
But ancient letters, they signed them right at the beginning. So Paul and Timothy, right? Um, Sometimes, like in Philippians, um, at least eight times in Paul's letters, there are co-senders, right? So Galatians, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thess, and Philemon, there are co-senders. So Paul and Timothy. That is not a situation where Paul's writing to Philippi from the prison in Rome, and he's, and he's like, oh, well, Timothy just happened through, so Paul and Timothy are writing to Philippians. No, no, no. It's like Paul and Timothy are thinking about this letter together. And they're ministering together. Perhaps they've both been in the place that they are writing. They both have a concern for that place. And they are jointly thinking about... Scholars are kind of differ on this. Um, I think Duval and Hayes say that, that they probably are working together. So they're writing, they're editing, they're thinking... And they're processing it together. Others will say it's not that they're doing that labor-intensive writing together, but but that the secondary author, like Timothy, um, is merely giving full assent to it and agreement of it. Regardless of how it's actually physically coming together, there there is an agreement between them. So don't just say, oh, Paul and Timothy. Well, it's really Paul and Timothy doesn't matter. No, Timothy is involved in that process. Um, They're working together on it. So there's an opening word from the sender. There is a word to the recipients. So again, Philippi, Philippians 1, 1, B. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, B. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, according, excuse me, including the overseers and deacons. So Paul is addressing the particular church in Philippi. So He's assuming that letter is going to get copied and sent somewhere else, but he wants them to understand, well, well this, is, this may have help in Ephesus or Laodicea or somewhere else in that region, in Galatia. I'm writing it for the church in Philippi particularly, and you guys who are read, also reading it, you understand that there were things going on in Philippi. And in fact, he addresses very particularly, and if I remember right, this is the only time he does it in one of his openings, he addresses particularly the overseers, the elders, and the deacons. So he's saying, hey guys, in leadership, pay attention to what I'm writing. There's something here for you. Why is that? Think about Philippi. Why is that, why is that significant in the Philippian letter, you think? Why, why is it significant? At the beginning of the letter, he says, I'm addressing the church in Philippi that was formed by Christ, including the overseers and deacons. Why does he single out the overseers and deacons? Do you think? I mean, this is a little bit of conjecture, but I think there's reason for it. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's a book about joy. I think it's I think it's a subtle reminder to the elders and deacons as you're leading the church, make sure to emphasize this thing about joy and emulation of Christ and all the things that come from Christ. There's also a problem in the Philippian church. What's the problem? Servant attitude. Um, chapter 4. <laughs> more the lack of. Um, I urge you, Odia, I urge you, Syntyche, to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion. 
That could be a name, could be a just a, an unidentified individual. I ask you to help these women who have shared in my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement and all the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Fix this problem in the church. So at the end of the letter, he's going to talk about, we've got a problem, you guys got to fix it. And I think he's drawing attention to that right at the beginning of the book. Hey, elders, hey, deacons, pay attention to what I'm saying. You've got work to do. And, and that whole problem also goes to the issue of joy in part, doesn't it? And the lack of joy and, and his desire to build up joy within the church. So he's got a word to the recipients. There's some kind of salutation. And all these things are typical in ancient secular letters as well. Um, so in Romans, for instance, he says, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a very typical. In fact, I think every letter of Paul uses the words grace and peace. And he's taking that idea of old Testament shalom, right? Peace. That was a common greeting, still is a common greeting in Israel. Um, peace be to you. And he's expanding that and say, yeah, peace be to you, but you also need God's grace. And so he's emphasizing that at the beginning of every book. And then he gives typically, this is where there's some variation. He'll give a thanksgiving for a particular church or he'll give a prayer for a particular church. Sometimes that gets omitted, so it's not an absolute. And here is where you will often find a theme that is, that is hinted at that will be developed later in the book. So don't just go tripping through these opening letter, opening verses and say, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, dear John, no, no, no. That, it, there's more to it than that. There's, there is a hint at what he is going to say. Um, so, for instance, in Romans, uh, he says in verse 8, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. And then he expands that. In fact, that's a lengthy section in the book of Romans. Um, starts in verse 8 and it goes all the way through verse 17. And he really unfolds a whole bunch of what he's going to talk about in the rest of the book in those 10 or 11 verses at the beginning of the book. In fact, Romans has by far the longest introduction of any book, 17 verses. Uh, the first seven verses account for the sender, the recipients, and the salutation. And then the Thanksgiving prayer portion shows up in verses 8 through 17. And, and again, Paul gives us a lot of information about what he's going to do. Um, then you have the body of the letter. And in the body of the letter, um, there are going to be personal letters. And sometimes when we see, use the word personal, don't think like it's going just to a person like, it does, Timothy, Titus, Philemon, those kinds of letters. But even, the, even some of the letters that are sent to churches, we would put in the category of their personal. You just read them and you go, man, this is, this is brotherly. This is friendly. This is, this is intimate. He's identifying particular people. What's interesting, right? Romans, um, here's a church he's never been to. It's very theological. It's got this treatise sense to it. Um, though we know that that's not what's going on in the book, but it has that sense to it. And yet at the end of the book, it's hugely personal because he's got those long lists of names. What are other books you think about that are personal? Not just letters to individuals, but be, maybe be a personal feel or sense to them. Again, Philemon. Philemon, yep. 
Timothy and Titus not only are to individuals, but they have that warm feeling as well. They're intimate. They're revealing things about Paul. Philippians, I'd put in the category of a personal letter. It's sent to a church, but it's also got, just got that warmth and that intimacy and that closeness. Interestingly, some of the, some of the letters that are sent um, to churches um, are personal and some of, the, some of the letters that are sent to individuals are also corporate. So the letters that are sent to Timothy are personal, but it's clear as he's writing that, that you understand this is not just for Timothy, this is for all the leaders in the Ephesian church so that they're all going to be leaning over Timothy's shoulder as he's reading this. Um, some letters are corporate. Uh, they're going to in, in that they're going to they're going to feel more, more uh, less personal, more theological. Uh, but they're still letters that are written for particular occasions. And um, they had that that purpose to them. The bodies of the letters had all kinds of structures. And some guys have tried to tear apart. OK, in ancient letters, we see, you know, all these kinds of structures and which letters in the New Testament churches fit those structures and. Um, I think it was Duval and Hayes. Uh, might have been um, it. Might have been Fee and Stewart. I don't remember. Um, basically said, yeah, you can try and fit them into those categories. But he said, honestly, there's just too much variation, and they just don't fit patterns. They're letters. When Regine and I were dating, she was living in Washington State, and I was living in Dallas. And that was back in the day before cell phones and before computers and email. And we we sent. Dozens, hundreds of letters to each other over the course of about 13 months. And, and they took all kinds of different forms, right? So sometimes they were pictures and sometimes they were cards that just had our name signed and, signed, and sometimes they were five-page epistles. And they, they're just all kinds of different forms. And the New Testament letters fit the same kinds of categories. That being said, um, if you look at Paul's letters, they tend to have logical, uh, carefully connected arguments. And um, he typically falls into the pattern of half the book or a big portion of the book will be theological. Another portion of the book will be applicational. So Romans 1 to 11 is its theology. Chapters 12 to 15 lay out what that theology is going to look like in the church. He writes Ephesians same way. Ephesians 1 to 3 is theology. 4 to 6 is the application. Um, Colossians 1 and 2 is the theology. 3 and 4 is the application of that theology. 1 John. Oops, sorry about this. 1 John is cyclical. So you have, you have three, three big things going on in John, right? There's the test of obedience. There, there, there are three kinds of tests in, in John. There's the test of obedience. There's a test of love. And there's a test of faith. And he goes through those three tests three times. So they call it a cycle of tests. The first cycle, the second cycle, the third cycle. Or you can see it as a spiral. And this is my daughter put this together. Her pastor is preaching through 1 John. And so he kind of walked through that. And so it just made sense to her to put it in this category. What's, the, what's, what's going on in the book? It just helped her to visualize and see um, how that's structured. So um, that, that's, a, that's a good kind of way to to visualize and see things. James is a little bit different even from that, right? So James is written almost like wisdom literature. Um, In places, it sounds very proverbial, and he moves from one topic to another fairly rapidly, fairly quickly. 
Others have said it's almost sermonic, you know, or homiletic, just lots of little tiny sermons, one after another, very, very quickly. So you're going to find all kinds of different structure, but you want to, what you want to be doing is looking, what's the structure? How's this put together? What are the themes that I'm seeing? And then at the end of the letter, you're going to find a closing final greeting. So there's typically going to be a doxology or a benediction. Um, Philippians, he says in 420, now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Um, in, in Romans, he double clutches. So he gives one benediction in verse 20 of chapter 16, and then he gives another benediction in 25 to 27. And there's lots of questions about that. We won't go into it, but just understand that there is a, a doxology at the end of the book. And then also along with that, there are greetings and farewells. So in Philippians, after the doxology, he says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So he does that very typically in all of his letters. All right, so you guys have talked about observation, interpretation, application, right? Right, as the three keys to understanding the scripture. So let's, let's kind of take that and think about that in the epistles. So let's understand not just general structure for epistles, but let's think about specific structure of epistles. Um, and, and here we're just thinking about the observing. As we're looking at the text, as we're making our way through the text, what are we seeing? We're not making an evaluation of it yet, but just what are we seeing, of, seeing in it? As I noted, most letters, especially the Pauline letters, move from doctrine to duty. So in Ephesians, um, you're going to find in the first three chapters, there's one imperative. And in fact, it's, it's interesting. The one imperative that he uses is in chapter 2. Verse 11, therefore, remember, that's the imperative, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh who are called the uncircumcision, then he goes on to help them remember what they were before Christ. And that word remember is not really something to do, is it? It's something to think. So it really goes along with the rest of what he's saying in the first three chapters. It's all about what you are in Christ. In the last three chapters, there are 41 imperatives. And just from that observation, you can say something has changed in 4.1. And he's moved from explanation to implication and application. This is what we are. This is what we do. And that's a very typical pattern in the Apostle Paul. You want to pay attention to paragraph units. I don't know how many times I've read in the last week as I've been thinking about this. Um, think Think paragraphs, not sentences, not words. I know that's a drum that you beat all the time, right? Think paragraphs. It's always about the paragraphs. You're trying to capture the big flow, what's going on overall. And you won't understand the particular meaning until you understand the broad meaning. Um, So we want to keep the logical units of thought together. And with that, when I say think paragraphs, don't think chapters, Because chapters aren't biblical divisions, right? Editors put them in afterwards, and they're helpful. So when I say, turn to Romans 12.1, you know exactly where to go. That's helpful. But the chapter divisions aren't always helpful. They don't actually break at a unit of thought. And sometimes they cross across units. So just, just be aware. When we're talking paragraphs, don't think chapters, think 
paragraphs and units of thought and you want to keep those units of thought together. To help you do that, pay attention to the transition words. Um, One of the things that I do, I I typically now, uh, when I'm reading my Bible in the morning, I have a, a PDF of the entire Bible. So it's a Bible on the left hand side of the page and blank pages on the right side of the page. And they're like double spaced. And so I just read it on my iPad and I'm drawing circles and I'm highlighting and underlining. And one of the things I do when I'm highlighting is I'm marking all the transitions. And transitions always get marked in orange highlight for me. And it's just a way for, to help me see, okay, there's something going on here. He's making a connection to what precedes. So we're looking for words, and you know this, things like so then, therefore, because, for, but, since, now concerning, finally, never believe them when they say finally, it never means finally, right? Um, so you want to you watch for those structural clues. Those are going to be really, really helpful. Um, for instance, uh, Ephesians 4.1, he does the same thing in Romans 12.1. Uh, end of chapter 3 in, in Ephesians, he gives a benediction. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. So he's concluding within his book, he's concluding a unit of thought about theological truths that underpin the Christian life. And so he gives a benediction in the middle of the book. And then he says in 4.1, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner. So he immediately transitions. Therefore, I've got a transition coming because of everything I've said. This is what you need to do. I'm imploring you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. That word walk is is not an imperative, but it has an imperatival force to it. Um, so that's that's just a good example of watch watch those structural markers. Pay attention to vocabulary. So what are the repeated words? What are the repeated ideas? Those, those are going to indicate themes. As you think about the Apostle Paul, what are some of Paul's um, favorite topics to talk about? What does Paul like to talk about? Love? Unity along with that? I'm sorry, Christ, yeah. Our position in Christ? The gospel. gospel. What about the gospel does he like to talk about? You need it. You need it. He he repeats the pattern of the gospel over and over again. He keeps emphasizing the gospel as these three important things. Mm Mm-hmm. Would you say that justification is a key theme in the Apostle Paul? Yeah. Paul talks about justification 27 times. He uses the the word justification or a form of the word justification, righteousness, 27 times in his letters. Of the 27 times it appears in one, two, three, five books, eight of his letters do not mention the word justify. That's stunning. Of the five, he mentions the word justify once in 1 Timothy, once in Titus, twice in Corinthians. Eight times in Galatians and 15 times in Romans. 
That's a hint <laughs> that, that Paul in Galatians and Romans is hammering on the issue of justification. Why would that be important in Romans? What's the purpose of Romans? Missionary, missionary letter. Why is it important to talk about, about justification in a missionary letter? Because you're taking the gospel and they don't know him. And he's demonstrating to them my understanding of the gospel's orthodox. It's not changed from the Old Testament. I, I believe the same gospel Abraham did and all the way forward. He just walks them all the way through the Old Testament over and over and over. It's the same gospel. And that's critical as he's, as he's introducing himself to a, a church that doesn't know him. It's critical that they understand that his understanding of the gospel is orthodox. Um, another vocabulary thing that's interesting. First John mentions no person by name. And so you'd say, well, that's a pretty impersonal letter, except he uses the word children 14 times and the word beloved six times. And that makes it feel much more personal. He also uses the word brother, and I didn't count it up. I don't remember how many times. The word brother appears, I'm guessing, on the neighborhood of 15 or 20 times in the letter. When Paul, or excuse me, when John uses the word brother, what does he mean? Okay. So then you get to 1 John 5, and he says in verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death, and I do not say that he should make request for this. And the big question in that verse is, who's the brother? Because how you understand the word brother is going is to determine how you interpret that verse. And so when I was preaching through 1 John years ago, um, I went back through the book and I just walked. How did he use the word brother? And you find this in 2.9. He says, The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. So there's a kind of man who calls another person a brother, but he's in darkness. He's not in Christ. In 2.11, he but the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his, blinded his eyes. So he calls, he says, there's this person. I call him brother, but I'm in darkness. And three, he says three times I'm in darkness. So there's a brotherhood that is supposed, but it's not genuine brotherhood. And he he repeats this theme at least one, two, three, four, five, at least six times in this letter. He uses the word brother not to refer to a believer, but as someone who supposes that he is a believer. He's not really in Christ. And so when you get to chapter five and you read the word, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading death. In other words, if he hasn't died by committing that sin yet, you need to pray for him. And he's talking about not someone who really is a genuine brother in Christ, but he's talking about someone who is supposing to be a brother in Christ, but is not. And you need to be praying for his salvation and giving him the gospel. Um, so we want to, we I think we read words like brother and we go, oh, brother in Christ. 
we need to be careful about not making assumptions about what the words mean and make sure that we're examining them within the context, right? So watch, watch carefully the vocabulary. Along with that, um, you're wanting to pay attention to verbs, right? So as you're watch, reading your, your paragraphs and watching progression within the paragraphs, you're going to pay attention to the verbs. Has anybody struggled with this verse? First uh, John 3. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Verse 6, no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Okay. Anybody sin today besides me? Gibbard, you sin today? Lamanac did. You saw Lamanac sin, didn't you? <laughs> right? We all sin, right? Anybody ever read that verse and struggled with it? Honestly, I'd, I have. I've read that verse and thought, I, I'm, I'm practicing sin. I do sin. And if I sin, it says I don't abide in him and I don't know him. What do you do with that? Well, you want to pay attention to the verb, and the verb is a present tense. And we would say it would be habitual. So it is the sense of the one who practices. That, that, is, that is the life. You would look at the person and say, that person is defined by their sin. Right? They, they are that kind of sinner. So culturally we say well, that person is an alcoholic or... That person's a homosexual. We're defining the person by the sin. They're, they're enslaved and in bondage to it. Um, when he says no one who sins in verse 6, he's talking about a perpetual, unrelenting, unrepentant life. So when you sin, you go, I'm such a fool. And you go to the Lord and you seek forgiveness and you seek reconciliation with you and your brother. John's not talking about that kind of person who just struggles with the flesh, but he's talking about the unrepentant person. Paying attention to the verb form helps us understand the meaning of the text. So you want to be paying attention to that as well. So understand specific structure. You want to, you want to be observing what's going on in the particular text. From observation, we want to move to interpretation, and then from interpretation to application. What did the letter mean when it was written? Anybody heard somebody say this? I've heard it in the last week. What does this verse mean to you? I, how do I say this nicely? I don't care. (laughs) I don't care what it means to you. That's not the goal. The goal is to understand what did Paul mean when Paul wrote the Romans. That's what it means. And that's our objective is to figure out what did Paul mean when he wrote or what did John mean when he wrote. Um, One writer said, in fact, Fee and Stewart say this, uh, what did this verse mean to the author and the recipient when it was written is the meaning of the text. We set out as a basic rule the premise that a text cannot mean what it never could have meant to its author or his or her readers. 
So if the text couldn't have meant what we say it means to the Romans when Paul wrote it, then that doesn't, then that is not the meaning of the text, which throws out 99% of what does it mean to you, right? I think what, what we mean by that question is how can we work this out in our lives? But that's a better way to ask that question. What are the implications of that text for my life? But that's a way different question than from, from what does it mean? We want to understand what did it mean? So when we're doing this, we're asking a lot of questions, and I'm going to assume you guys have been through all this. Uh, the, the, I have a journalism major in college, and we were taught the five W's and, and one H rule for asking questions, who, what, where, when, why, and how. And that's really the questions that you're asking of the text, right? So who was the author? What was his circumstance? What was his relationship with the recipients? When and why did he write? Who received the letter? What was their situation? What was their spiritual condition? What was their maturity? Is he writing to Israel? Is he, is he writing to a particular church? Is he writing to leaders, to unbelievers? Um, are there people or places that you need to identify? And what do you already know about those people and places? What are the particular problems that provoked the letter? What was the cultural situation for both the author and the recipient? So author and recipient might be writing in different cultural settings. How's that, how's that impacting the meaning of the text? Were there any significant political or societal activities? If, someone, if, if the scriptures were being written in our generation, think about a span of about 50 years. And if we're at the end of the scriptures, right, that are being written now, would they sound different than if they'd been written in 1970 or 1980? Dramatically, wouldn't they? I mean, from a cultural setting, political setting, massively different. Well, it wasn't unlike what was going on then as well. We need to understand those things. We want to understand the differences between then and now. So what was going on then and how does that relate to our situation now. Sometimes in the epistles, things are really, really close. And we can, we can draw very easy parallels between the cultural setting and the church, to, the church that was receiving the letter to our situation now. So let's think about Romans. What are some close parallels in Romans? We've just been in Romans for years. <laughs> what were some things that are going on in Romans? You go, well, that's easy. I can translate that. To our situation. Justification. Justification. And the clarity of the gospel. We, we don't have any trouble communicating the gospel. Paul's made it really clear. Chapter 4, end of chapter 3, and into chapter 4 makes it really easy. So we have a clear articulation of the gospel. Does anybody identify with Romans 1 to 3? Sin, right? <laughs> um, I, I was talking to my dad. My dad's a seminary professor. He's taught in the church for years and years and years and and i told him six years ago i was going to preach romans he said i've never taught romans i said really you've never taught romans why'd you avoid romans he said i never could figure out how to keep from killing everybody in the first three chapters (laughs) right so it's just that that sense of we're all sinners and that there's there's a, a lot of easy overlap right to that um sanctification by the power of the spirit Care of the flock, chapter 12. A lot of that stuff in chapter 12 is so easy. I can't tell you how many times I've quoted. In fact, I've done it in the last week. 12.18, so much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Right. So your task 
is be peaceable, to pursue reconciliation, and understand that sometimes people are just not going to be peaceable. And no matter what you do to try and fix it, they're not going to be peaceable. That's not your responsibility. They're accountable to the Lord. You're not. Well, that's an easy transfer. Um, and I've quoted that many times. What are some divergent ideas? What are some things you read in Romans? You go, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do with that one. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. First verse. I mean, I, I, I puzzle over this on the first sermon. Romans 1, 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. There's correlation between me and Paul in that. Called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. What do you do with that? Because there's no more apostles. And I'm certainly not an apostle. And I sure don't want to put myself in that category. So you've got to think that that's something that's very divergent. To be an apostle, you had to see the resurrected Christ and be taught personally by him. Well, that's gone. So what do you do with that? So you've got to, you've got to, Wrestle through that. Yeah, right. No, 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 no. I'm just, I, no. I'm saying that that does not transfer directly to me. So when he's talking about sexual immorality, that applied in the Roman culture. That applies in all, our culture today. When he talks about apostleship, that was something unique to his day. He was uniquely an apostle. We don't have apostles today. So how do we? What kind of implications can we draw out from that? Today. I am not denigrating at all. You're, you don't, don't miss the point. He was an apostle. He rightly wrote that. The question is not. Yep. Yep. Sure. Yeah, and, 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 and that's one of the ways you can you can apply that is say, I don't correlate to Paul, but I do place myself under his authority as he's writing because he is an apostle and he comes with apostolic authority that was unique. Uh, and, and I as a preacher or I as a teacher or I as a person in Christ don't have that kind of authority. So yeah, that's a good way to, that's a good way to see that. Um, use of certain spiritual gifts, so like the gift of prophecy when we unpack that when we were in Romans 12. Um, that does not have a direct correlation. The whole thing about meat served to idols and all, really all of chapter 14 does not directly apply. It's not like there's a direct transference uh, of those principles. There are principles in the chapter, but it's not an easy transference for us. And we find numerous... Yes, the theological principles behind it certainly do apply, and he's careful about articulating those, but the whole, we don't have something, situation. the situation does not apply directly, where something like immorality, um, corporate worship, those kinds of things certainly do apply much more easily, uh, much more clearly. Yes. 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 These served idols doesn't apply to the North American church. We have heard sermons by oh, absolutely. Pastor. Absolutely. That was 
Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever have to deal with that, Papua New Guinea? Uh-huh. With uh, basically playing with spirits and demons, and it was too close. He said, "We we can't we can't do the one without inviting this back in." Interesting. So issues of Western demise. Interesting. Yeah, and that goes. Um, here I'm kind of adapting and summarizing a little bit from um, grasping God's word, and um, we want to we want to figure out what some of the key principles are that the le- that the that the letter is teaching us. And sometimes the author is going to give us the principle that he wants us to understand, right? And it's going to be clear. Um, there's not going to be a question. So Romans 13. Render all, verse 7, what is due them, tax to whom tax, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So he's just kind of laid it out. If you owe something to somebody, pay it, whatever that is, even in, even in a governmental situation. Um, sometimes the author is going to give us a reason for his exhortation. He's going to give a reason and then give the exhortation. So, for instance, um, in chapter 15, Um, he's going to say, I want you guys to support me. And the reason he says, I want you to support me is because of what he said about the gospel in verse 20. I aspire to preach the gospel, not where Christ is already named so that I would not build on another man's foundation. So I don't want to go behind somebody else. I want to take it to new places, right? Missionary venture. Uh, and now, verse 23, there's no further place in, for me in these regions since I've had for many years a longing to come to you. So when I come to you, verse 24, um, I want you to um, be I want you to help me on my way to go to Spain. So he he lays out the reason and then asks them, uh, tells them what he wants them to do. So he's he's giving a reason for his particular exhortation or the exhortation flows out of. Um, his life circumstance. Sometimes the author is going to give a more general theological principle in a a context, and then he's going to flesh that out with particular actions. So um, one of my favorite um, is in Ephesians 4. When he talks about the process of sanctification, he says, in reference to your former manner of life, lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted, Be renewed, verse 23, in the spirit of your mind. Verse 24, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So put off, renew your mind, put on, right? So well-known process of sanctification. And then what he does in verses 25 to 32 is he fleshes that out. And he gives us five situations where he tells us what should be put off, what should be put on, and how we ought to be thinking about that situation. Just give you one example, verse 25. He says, therefore, laying aside falsehood, therefore, 
What is the therefore, therefore? It's there to connect to the previous. So he's fleshing out what he's just said about sanctification. Lay aside falsehood. Take off falsehood. Stop lying. Stop living, stop living deceitfully. What do you put on? Truth. Speak truth, each of you, with his neighbor. So put off untruthfulness. Put on truthfulness. Why? Because for we are members of one another. Because of our identity in Christ and our mutual habitation together in Christ, we put off lying, we put on truth-telling. Truth and he does that five times in verses 25 to 32. So he's, he's giving us there the reasons for his, um, for his exhortation. He's fleshing out those exhortations. Um, I think um, I heard or came up with this term or saw this term years ago. It's kind of become mine. Um, and one of your texts uses it. I think it's um, grasping God's word. It talks about principalizing the text, right? So you look at the text, evaluate the text. What does the text mean? And then you draw a bigger theological principle out of that text that goes beyond the parameters of that particular situation. And then from that principle, then we draw the application to our own life. Uh, we might call that building a theological truth. Um, and what's, what's the overarching theological principle behind that text? Um, just a couple ideas about how to build theological principles from text. Understand that the revela- revelation of theology is of, uh, uh, revelation of theology is progressive. And when we use the word theology there, we're talking about God. So when, when the scripture's teaching us about God, it's progressive in, in nature. Uh, which doesn't mean that theology is moving from fuzzy and false in the Old Testament to clear and new in the New Testament and true, but it does mean that it moves from partial revelation to a fuller revelation from Old Testament to new. And you see that, for instance, in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. So God's character doesn't change, but the way he reveals himself is progressive and builds in nature. Uh, be aware as you're trying to build these theological and principal constructs of the limitations of language to explain the infinite complexities of God. Uh, J.I. Packer says this, God is infinite and flawless and people are both finite and flawed. So when everyday words are used of God, all thought of finiteness and imperfection must be removed and the overall notion of unlimited self-sustaining existence in perfect loving holiness must be added in. So whenever you're saying something about God, you just understand there, you, you come with built-in restrictions to explain the complexities of an infinite God. Um, Theology is revealed to produce glory to God. I think there's a typo in your notes. It should say 1 Corinthians 8, 4 to 6. I think it says Romans. Is that right? Do your notes say Romans? It should be 1 Corinthians. Um, again, Packer, the goal of theological Bible reading is not just to know truth about God, though one's quest for godliness must start there, but to know God personally in a relationship that honors him. So um, here are three questions I just ask myself on a regular basis when I'm just reading my Bible. What does the text tell me about God? 
What does the text tell me about myself or my situation or my world in which I live? And what is this text telling me about how to respond to that world, that situation? Um, So what's revealed about the character of God? What are the big truths about God that are being exposed in this text? What is being exposed about this world? About my struggle with sin? About my my walk with Christ, my provision in Christ for living in this world? And then what is being revealed about how to live in this world? Um, The epistles always employ theology at the service of a particular need. can't remember where I got that. Um, But it's our responsibility to always be saying, what's going on in this text and how's, how's the writer using this text to guide me? And so when we're coming up with theological principles and then applying, and that's what we're trying to do. I want to get the big picture, what's going on, and then I want to flesh it out. We want to make sure that the principles are consistent with the rest of Scripture. Remember, every New Testament letter is written to a particular situation, a particular circumstance, which means it doesn't say everything that there is to say about that topic. And you've got to be careful about saying, well, this is, this is the sum total of the, the discussion in Scripture, and so I'm going to base my whole theology on that topic without considering the rest of Scripture. And that's where, that's where Romans and James help us. If you take just Romans or just James, you can end up with a skewed perspective of the gospel, but you put them together and you have a beautiful picture of the totality of the way gospel works with works. Um, so you want to, you want to be thinking, okay, this is, this is what I think I'm saying. How does that fit? This is what I think the text is saying. How does that fit with everything else I know in the scriptures? And then you want to come up to this question. How can I live out these principles today? What am I going to do about this? Um, says one writer, Philip Riken, or not Philip, excuse me, it's his father, Leland Riken in uh, reading the Bible as literature. He says the New Testament epistles employ a fixed form, incorporate smaller literary genres into the overriding letter form and rely on poetic language and stylistic patterns to communicate their meanings with power. The corresponding skills that they require from readers are the ability to determine the overall structure of an epistle, to think paragraphs in following the logical flow of ideas to interpret figurative language and to be sensitive to the effects of artistic patterning. I just thought that was a helpful way of kind of summarizing and tying tying everything together. So epistles, easy to interpret. On one level, yes, but they're always pitfalls. You got to be careful. And the way the way you're going to be best helped is just read and then read it again and read it again and read it again and then check your conclusions. Look at that. I finished a minute early. How good is that? You can tell everybody on Sunday morning. He actually finished early. Father, thanks for the day, for the evening, for time together. Thank you for the privilege of talking about your word. What a joy it is to us. What help it is to us. Uh, Would you guide us in our understanding of it? Give us delight in it. Give us transformation from it. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.